name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Billy Rigman sent me this week, and he said, Jimmy, I have a question about unanswered prayer. And he sent me this. I thought I'd share it with you just to get your thoughts. He says, a little girl asked her dad why he bowed his head every time on Sunday before preaching. He was obviously a pastor. And he replied, because every Sunday he was praying and asking God to help him preach a great message. To which the little girl retorted, well, dad, why doesn't God do it? (laughs) So, Billy, I have a question. Was there a purpose in that? Uh, you know, so y'all can be praying for, if you're having unanswered prayer in that regard, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, we're part of the SBC convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, and yearly, up prior to this year, I, I guess, maybe this is the only year, I don't know, but we didn't meet this year, but every year we meet in June. And one of the things that happens at that meeting is we'll, we'll write these resolutions. And so resolutions are, are something that says, it has a, a series of statements that are true. And then it says, therefore, we are resolved to, and it'll have a resolution statement. Quite often, they'll have like five resolving statements uh, based on what has said. The truth is, every time we see the word therefore anywhere, even either spoken or in a statement, in a written context, that, that statement's sort of like a resolution. That therefore is sort of like leading into a resolution. Because of what's already been said, therefore, we're resol- I want to resolve, the writer or the speaker would be saying, I want to resolve this as a logical conclusion or as a logical consequence based on the things that I've said that precede what I'm about to say now. Now, we talk about therefores often here on Sunday mornings because we find them in the Bible a lot. And, and so we've talked about therefore a whole bit. A whole lot. And the reason I'm bringing it up again this morning is because where we left off last week with verse 12, verse 13 actually begins with, with a therefore. So that means that everything that, that Peter's going to say and what we're going to look at this morning is resolved or he's saying it because of what he said last week. You know, and uh, so I thought it'd be good for just a moment just to go back and real quickly sort of look at what he said in the first 12 verses. So if you were here, if you weren't, let me tell you what he said. He said that the book is, this is written by me, Peter. It was written probably around 64 AD, although it doesn't say that in the text. Uh, Peter writes and he says he's writing, writing to the chosen believers all over Asia Minor, which would be present day Turkey. And uh, Peter didn't know these believers, didn't know these Christians. He probably had never visited these churches before and not a huge amount is known about the individuals to whom he's writing. Some have suggested that these believers are Jewish. They're Jewish Christians out of the Jewish heritage. Others have said because they're located in Asia Minor that they're Gentile believers that he's primarily writing to. My own thoughts are that neither Peter nor Paul nor any of the New Testament writers are are into identity politics. I don't think he's writing to the Jews or to the Gentiles. I believe he's writing to believers regardless of what your background might, might be. 
It seems to be little doubt that the believers to whom he's writing are struggling. They're struggling with suffering, and most likely they're suffering under Nero, the emperor, who was primarily responsible for the greatest persecution in that time of believers. Nero, if you'll remember, he would do things like he, he blamed Christians for the burning of Rome, but he also took Christians... Uh, put pitch all over them, tar all over them, stuck them up on a pole and lit them on fire at night to light the roads of Rome. And so uh, they were under great persecution. It was a tough time. And Peter is most likely writing uh, to them. I remind you that he started off by saying that he's running to strangers. They're exiles in this land. They're not part of that kingdom. This kingdom in which they live, the kingdom of Rome, I guess it would have been for most of them. He's saying, that's not your kingdom. Uh, But at the same time, he says, you've been chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of God. You've been chosen to this living hope that you shall receive an inheritance of salvation. This reminding you all of last week, those of you that were here. Then he says, this inheritance of our salvation is kept for us in heaven by God. And it's unfading and it's incorruptible and it's not going to lose one iota of its strength throughout the years to come because God is keeping it and God is protecting it. And he says this should be a source of inexpressible joy for all of us. And then Peter in the middle of all that says, but I know even though you're suffering right now, this is a time, I mean, even though you're filled with inexpressible joy, this is a time of suffering right now. I know, I, I get it that you're suffering. And then the last part of the verses of, uh, the last part of verses 10, 10 through 12, I think it was, he says, and we have such a great privilege. He says, the prophets who wrote of old, they wanted to understand the things that, that we understand today, but God would say to them, hey, it's not for you guys to get. It's for somebody later on. It's for other people. And you happen to be the people. Uh, you're the ones for whom the prophets wrote. You should be so encouraged and excited because this is such a great privilege. And then he adds this last line. He says, even the angels long to understand this in, in times gone by. Of course, they understand it now, but, but they long to understand it. And that brings us to verse 13. 13, which begins, therefore. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from the CSB. This would be a great time to pull out your Bible on your phone or, or get one off the table in the, back, uh, in the back welcome area, but follow along in your Bibles as I read. I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourself in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, But with the precious blood of the Messiah of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed to to these uh, revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourself by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, for a pure, from a pure heart, love one another constantly." 
Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel. That is the good news that was proclaimed to you. So, as we finish um, the chapter this morning, what is the prevailing statement in the first part on which, to which Peter is pointing as a precursor to the therefore? In other words, of all that we've said in verses 1 through 12, what is the precursor to the therefore? What is the reason why he is going to build these therefores in just a moment? Now, I personally think we could say that all 12 verses are the therefore, the the precursors to the therefore. In other words, what I'm going to tell you now, Peter could be saying, I'm building it on everything that I've said. However, my personal conviction is that he's pointing to one particular thing, and that is to the inheritance that is ours Uh, in Christ. This inheritance that he says is the living hope that we have. This hope that is always there, never fading away. Because of this living hope that we have an inheritance that is ours, undefiled, uncorrupted, kept for us in heaven. Because we have this inheritance, and if you remember, we said, and I'm going to talk about this more in just a moment, that this inheritance is our salvation. It is our resurrection from the dead in the future. Because we have this, I believe that's the, the precursor for the therefore. And, uh, and the therefore that he is going to proceed with really has five resolutions, if you would. There are five commitments or five challenges that Peter is asking of us in light of the things that he's already said. Now, I told you this, but those, those resolutions in Southern Baptist life, they would have a whole bunch of precursor statements, but then they would say, therefore, they'd make a resolution. Therefore, it's resolved that because of all of this, we're going to do this. And then it would say, and be further resolved, and they'd give us another resolve, and be further resolved, and they'd give us another one. Well, that's what, I, I think that's what Peter's doing. And I'm going to share with you five resolves, five challenges that flow, you know, at least in part from, from this inheritance that's ours, but maybe from all of the things that Peter has said. So let me just dive in. Let's begin. Here's the first one. He says, be resolved to be ready. Look at verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action. Be resolved to have your mind ready to respond. And in the original language, something that's lost to us in the translation is, and maybe some translations, your translation may even say this. It says, gird up your minds. Gird up your minds. And what that is a picture of was what the men of those day, of that day used to do. They would wear tunics not pants like us, definitely not shorts. And so they would have these long robes. So if they were going to run or if they had to do some activity, they would take their tunic and they would gird it up around their waist and they would stick it in their belt so that their knees would then be open to move and they could move quickly. So, so Peter takes that metaphor, that picture, and he says, gird up, your, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up your, gird up your mind. Be ready is what he's saying here. And, and so this is the, the application. This is the resolution. Be ready in your minds. Make a commitment to be a thinker and be ready to be a thinker. Now, Peter doesn't tell us what to be ready to do with our mind. He just simply says, be ready. 
Dick, I think it was you that introduced the idea of being on the edge of your seat when it came to sharing our faith. I think that was your metaphor. We need to be on the edge of our seat to share our faith. Well, Peter's not talking about, in this particular case, sharing our faith necessarily, but he is saying, be on the edge of your seat to use your mind to think. That's his first resolve. Because of all that's been said, therefore, be ready in your minds. But then he goes on. Here's the second one. And by the way, they won't all go this fast, just, just in case you're getting hopeful, all right? Here's the second one. Be resolved, uh, to, uh, be resolved in your mind to be ready. And then he says, here's the second one. Be resolved to be ready in your thinking and to be thoughtful. Be ready to be thoughtful. In verse 13, therefore, with your minds ready for action, he says, be sober-minded. In other words, he's saying, be ready to think. And now he says, be ready to think deeply. That, that's what he means by sober-minded. Don't let your minds be clouded, clouded with alcohol or apathy. And I want to suggest to you that the reason why Peter is saying this, he's saying this is because that's our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is not to think deeply about things, but rather to think superficially, to just kind of scratch the surface in our minds. But here he's telling us, be sober-minded, think deeply. In his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman says, we use two primary modes of thinking to process information and make decisions. Mode one is intuitive, instant, unconscious, automatic, and emotional. Mode two is slow, rational, conscious, reflective, reasoning, and deliberate. I think that's what, I think that's what Peter is telling us. Be ready, be on the edge of your seat to use your mind, not in a superficial way, but in a deep thinking way. Now, neuroscientists have done experiments about our brains and our consciousness, and they've determined that a lot of decisions that we make, we're not making them willfully. We're not even thinking about them. Our brains are making them for us. Decisions like if you're going to that door and you're walking out, your mind is already determining what door you're going to push, what door you're going to go out. I mean, I think we can all relate to this. Let me give you an illustration that, that you'll probably relate to. Have you ever driven for hours and hours and hours and then when you get to where you're going, you can't remember a moment of the time you've been driving? Yeah, your mind's just been making decisions for you without you consciously making them. Or how about driving your car in general? How many of you have to think, oh, I have to turn the steering wheel this way, or I have to press the gas pedal? You know, you don't think about those things. Your mind just automatically is doing those things for you. And, and unfortunately, listen to me carefully, because I'm challenging you this morning. I, I think that Peter is saying in, in this realm of what's really important based on, based on this um, inheritance that we have, it's really easy for us to just live our life in an emotive way where, where our responses are emotive and they're not really where we're thinking sober-mindedly. We're not thinking deeply about these things. We're thinking on a superficial, unconscious sort of level. So I'd suggest to you this morning that deep thinking stops, reflects on what is before one, and assesses things accordingly. Shallow thinking is, is um, when we go on our feelings and what seems obvious, and we rarely want to look beyond what's obvious to us. We just know it because on face value, it's what it says or what it is. And so we never really want to look behind the curtain 
to use the uh, Wizard of Oz analogy. We never want to look beyond the curtain. Sober-minded thinking, on the other hand, looks at the whole chain of effects, uh, impacts, and outcomes. Sober-minded thinking is deep thinking, hard work, shallow thinking stems, I think, from laziness. Because it's just really easy to be emotive. It's just really easy to just go with what seems to be on the surface rather than to explore issues deeply. To think deeply is probably what Aristotle meant when he said, it is, and I quote, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Thinking deeply means we're willing to examine thoughts that come into our mind. And I believe this is what he's saying here. Be ready to use your mind. And then be ready to use your mind to think deeply. And that brings us to the third resolution. And he says this, be resolved to be riveted. Verse 13 again, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now he tells us that we're to be ready to think, we're to think deeply, and then he says we're to think deeply or be resolved to set our hope, and I think this is where the deep thinking comes in, on the inheritance of the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. Hope begins in our minds. Set your minds on the hope that is yours, on the grace that is, be, it is to be given to you when Jesus returns. That's what he says. Think deeply about your inheritance that comes to us when Jesus comes back. Be prepared in your minds to go there and to be think about that, to think about that. And what is the grace to be given to us at the return of Jesus? It is the resurrection from the dead. It's what Peter and Paul hoped in. Here's Paul, not Peter. Here's Paul. From his letter to the Philippian church. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Then he jumps to this. That I may know him, that is Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And Peter says, it's going to be given to us at the revelation of Jesus. It's going to be given to us at the return of Jesus. Set your minds and your hearts on this. Now, let me get practical, lest you just think I'm theoretical and I'm just talking about in your brains and all. But let me tell you how this works practically. And let me tell you why I think Peter is telling us this. Because remember, the backdrop of all this is suffering, right? He's writing to a bunch of people who are suffering greatly under, under Nero, evidently. And so what, what, what does this mean? Well, here's what it means. It means when you lose your son in an accident... And the questions cross your mind like, where was God? Or, or the, the thoughts cross your mind like, God must not care. And by the way, neither of those thoughts crossed my mind, but they cross people's minds all the time in situations like we endured with Shep. Here's what happens. You think quickly because you're ready, and you think deeply about the ramifications of following Jesus. And you think deeply about the ramifications of the return of Jesus and the resurrection, uh, the resurrection, our resurrection from the dead and the restoration of all things when Jesus comes. And you know what happens to you when you think deeply about this hope that you have? Well, it makes it so that 
that despair doesn't overtake you. It makes it so that you don't turn your back on God and walk away because God didn't do what you thought he ought to do or God didn't respond to the way you thought God ought to respond. When you lose your job, you think quickly and deeply about the grace given to you and this inheritance that God has for us. So when you lose your job, you, you, you know, you're thinking deeply about what God has done for you and about what God has promised and you don't, you don't doubt God's goodness and you don't turn away from God because you lost your job and where is God when we're now suffering? Or if any kind of suffering comes to you, you rivet your thinking on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and on his return and what, and what Peter says to us, let me go back and find it, what Peter says will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You go back, you don't stumble. Remember John the Baptist? Here, here's John the Baptist. He's arrested. He's in prison. And I'm sure his thinking was this. Jesus is Messiah. He's my cousin. He loves me. I'm the precursor to the Messiah. I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness. Why am I still in prison? Why hasn't God released me? And you remember that, don't you? So he sends a question to Jesus and says, hey, I'm having some real big doubts here. Are you really Messiah or are you not? Why is he having doubts? There can only be one reason why he's having doubts. Only one. And that's because he's not, he's in prison and Jesus isn't releasing him. Jesus hasn't set him free. And actually it's kind of looking scary for me. And, and remember when Jesus sends back to him, he says, hey, tell, tell John this. The deaf people are hearing. The, the mute people are talking. The blind people are seeing. The dead are being raised. Don't doubt. Don't doubt. The reason why I think Peter is saying this, therefore, in light of this inheritance, this living hope that you have, that it's kept for you in heaven, not going to be defiled, not going to be corrupted, not going to lose it in any way. Because of that, listen, think. Think quickly when things happen to you and then think deeply about the things of God so that you will stay riveted to this truth that God has you and God's going to keep you. I think, that's what, I think that's what Peter is saying to them and to us. And then he goes on. And there's a fourth resolution. And these are a little bit different. So think, think quickly, think quickly, be ready to think, think deeply, think about the hope that is ours, be riveted to that. Don't let that, don't let that escape your thinking when all these suffering issues come. But then he goes on, here's the fourth. Be resolved to be obedient to God. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. He says, hey, listen, in light of this inheritance that's yours, obey God. Don't, don't, be, don't, don't fall away. Follow him. Obey him. Stay connected to him. This verse is, you know those people that say it's just to the Gentiles? This is a verse they point to. Look at the verse again. Think deeply. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorant, ignorance. Who were the formerly ignorant? Well, the Jews would have said they were the Gentiles because they were the ones that didn't have the covenants and the laws and everything that God had given Israel. So that would be a descriptor of the Gentiles. So he's, he, they would never have spoken to the, to the Jews like that, being formerly ignorant, because they had all the words of God in the Old Testament. So some people say, well, that's, hey, it's, it's obvious to the Gentiles there. Well, to me, it's just obvious that Peter is writing to Jews and Gentiles because as we'll see in the weeks to come, the next couple of weeks, 
weeks, his focus is really going to be very Jewish in nature. And, and so, you know, I, he's writing to both. Again, I just want to say he's not carving us up into groups. He, I, I think Peter's writing to both groups. Don't be conformed to your former desires, he says. And by this, Peter means the desires that are contrary to God. Don't be conformed to the things that you wanted to do and you want to do apart from God. Don't be conformed to those. And then he tells us in verse 15, follow along in your Bibles. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each man's, each one's work, you are to conduct yourself in reverence during your time living as strangers. Here Peter says, be holy. You know the word holy, you know what it means, right? I mean, we, we, I think we make it more than it is. The word holy means set apart. And so, so literally, let's go back and read that. But as the one who called you is set apart, Right? You also are to be set apart in all your conduct. For it is written, be set apart because I am set apart. In other words, I, in other words, I don't want you to get lost in some, you know, esoteric understanding of holiness that, that just, somebody said this morning in our prayer time, they were saying, you know, I'm always confused by that word. I don't think I can be it. Listen, I want you to simplify it. He's just simply saying, be set apart like me. Now, now, in all fairness, the being set apart here is being set apart unto righteousness and doing the will of God. In other words, God is set apart from sin. God is set apart from what's wrong and what's evil. He's not those things, okay? So he's set apart from that. And so in the same way, he's saying to you and me, you be set apart from those things. Now, real quickly, real quickly, you need to get this. Hang on to this. There's a sense in which you're already set apart, you're already holy. God has set you apart for eternal life. God has set you apart for adoption. God has set you apart for purity and, 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 and a life that will be, he's going to remove all sin from us. He set you apart for his kingdom. He set you apart for resurrection and immortality. He set you apart as forgiven. He set you apart and that he, you, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are already set apart, okay? But in practice here, he's saying we are to be set apart from everyone around us in our conduct. We're to be different from the world around us. And then he says this, look at the text again, verse 17, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially, in other words, if you claim God is your God, then you ought to be set apart and different from the world around us. So what, what does he mean practically? He's saying, guys, we should not let sexual lust control us. We're not to be greedy or love money. We're not to let alcohol or drugs overtake our thinking. Instead, we're to be kind we're not to be harsh. We're to be compassionate. We're not to be indifferent. We're, we're to be others focused, not selfish. And I could go on and on and on. I mean, we're to be different. We're to look different. We're to act different. We're to talk different. Everything about us is to be different. I don't mean better. Well, I guess I do mean better in the sense that I mean that we're to be like God. But what I'm saying is we're to be different. And so people who have no concern for God, who have hardened their hearts to God, you know, who have, have resisted the work of the Spirit in their lives, and they've resisted the work of, of, the, of God's truth within them, those people who have resisted God and who live for themselves, 
There is to be something different about us. And here's what Peter is saying. Therefore, act different. Be it resolved that you act differently than everyone else around you. Verse 18, here's why. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors. By the way, there's another, there's another Gentile check thing, you know. Inherited from your, this futile way of life, inherited from your ancestors. They would have never said that about the Jews. The, the, the Jews would not have seen their life as an empty way of life inherited from their ancestors. They inherited the covenants. They inherited God's truth. That would have been something that would have been aimed at the Gentiles or would have been specific to Gentiles. And so people say, well, this is just to the Gentiles. It's not, but there's a verse that would point to that. And I'm saying that because it's going to get so Jewish in the next chapter, right? So I want you to understand it's written to both Jews and Gentiles who follow Jesus. But the pre- you were not redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not not with perishable things like silver or gold. You were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Messiah, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. And here Peter says, we should be different, not because God bought us with gold and silver, but because God, God redeemed us back. He bought us back from this way we used to live. He bought us back from that by Jesus, by the precious life of Jesus, by the death of Jesus. You know, um, here, here's a, a, just a side thought I have here. Parents, your influence is priceless. Do you see that? He says, redeem from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors. You know, um, I can't, my, my children, from my vantage point, from what I understand, they're libertarianly free creatures. And they have their own will. And, you know, I can't force their will. I can't make their will. They can do whatever they want. And, and that's why not all of our children follow Jesus, even though we pour our lives in them and we want them to follow Jesus. They don't because they're their own person. But we cannot ignore what the scripture says and even what this verse says, that the influence that we have as parents is priceless. So, so you parents that are still in the parenting mode, I mean, Anne, Anne and my parenting is done. Um, I mean, we can be great grandparents, and it's not that I don't have any kind of speaking to my children's lives, but my children are adults, and they, they live their lives now. But parents with little children, I mean, you're, you're in the midst of the most important time of your life because you get to influence those, those precious sons and daughters of yours. You get to pour into them the truth of God's word, and you get to pour into them the reality of the kingdom because you're living it out in front of them. Hopefully you are anyway. And God did what he did, not with money, but he did it with the death of Jesus. Let me tell us how to be saved. Because here's what Pe- this is what Peter is saying. This is how we're saved. We're not saved by what we do or by money or by all of those things. The, the truth is we're all under the curse of sin, of sin. The curse of sin is death. We're all under the curse of sin. We're all going to die because of Adam's sin and our own sin. But God, being rich in mercy, became one of us. I mean, he took on literally flesh and bone and became one of us. He, he wasn't a hologram, everyone. He wasn't a spiritual being that just put on some kind of outward form to look like us. That's, not, that's what the angels in the Old Testament did. 
That's what God in the Old Testament did. But that's not what God did when Jesus came. And he, he took on our humanity. I, I don't get it, everyone, but this is, what, this is what we know. He became one of us. And he bled. And he ate. And he, he lived like us. And he did that for one purpose. So that he could enter into death and pay for our death and redeem our death. That's why God did that. You say, why did he have to do that? That I don't know. God is God. There's certain things I don't understand, but I just know that in his justice, even as God understands, as God has made us to understand justice, Jesus entered into our life so that he could redeem our death and pay for our death. And the Bible says that the only way to please God is by faith. The only way to come to know God is by faith. It's not by, it's not by what we do, but it's by our trusting in God and, and following God. And really, you cannot trust in God without trusting in Jesus. I mean, they're, they're inextricable, everyone. To trust in God is to trust in Jesus. How does one, how does one be born again to a living hope? How does one, he's gonna talk about being born again in just a moment, right? Uh, to an, with an imperishable seed. How does one get to be born again? One is born again by believing in and trusting in God who became one of us in Jesus and died for us and trusting that he bore our sin. And you know what? If we trust in him, comes to live within us, gives us his spirit, changes us, he begins to, he begins to make it so that we can live differently now than, uh, than people who don't have him in their life. Look at verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Don't forget who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is what we talked about last week. If you remember, we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And I told you that there's two views on that. One is God foreknows that he's going to choose me, you know. And the other is that he knows that he's foreschoosing Jesus. He, his knowledge is that he's going to choose Jesus and that all of us who put our faith in him will be in him forever and receive all that God has for us in Christ. I believe verse 20 speaks to that. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In him, before the foundation of the world, we were chosen to receive adoption. We were chosen to receive regeneration. We were chosen to receive eternal life and immortality. We were chosen to receive everything that God has for us in Christ. God became a human being and then raised Jesus from the dead, glorifying him so that, look at the verse, look at the verse, this isn't me, so that your faith and hope are in God. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you are putting your faith in God. There is no faith in Jesus apart from God, and there is no faith in God that's apart, that leads to eternal life, that's apart from Jesus. Jesus atoned for our sin. I don't care whether you're an Old Testament saint or a New Testament saint. It is the death of Jesus that atones, pays for, rids us of our own death. Finally, here's the last resolve. Be resolved to be loving. Look at verse 22. 
Since you have purified yourself by your obedience to the truth, we've been talking about that, since you've set yourself aside to be obedient to God so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, so that you are doing what God and John, what Peter and John and every other writer tells us to do, which is love one another. Then he says, from a, this is Peter, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Be resolved, everyone, to love each other and to love each other constantly. Peter continues, what a great inheritance we have. And because of that, you know, we ought to, love ought to characterize us. It's why I read 1 John chapter 4 this morning as we began. Because it's all about loving, right? From a pure heart, a changed life, love one another and love one another constantly. You know, um, I guess it's because love is the opposite of selfishness. And we're all broken towards selfishness. I guess this is why it's so hard to love constantly. It's, it's, it just has to be because of our broken sinfulness. Preferring others as more important than ourselves is so hard. And so Peter has to say to us, be resolved, everyone, in light of this great inheritance, be resolved to love one another, love one another all the time. And what does that look like? What does it look like to love one another constantly? Well. If you're tracking with me, your mind, and you're thinking, you're thinking deeply, then you're already saying to yourself, wow, what does it look like to love constantly? Well, the Bible's just, it's just got thing after thing after thing of what it means to love, right? All the one another commands. And there's literally tens of them, dozens of one another commands. That's what it means to love one another. And so I could sit here, we could, we could, I'm not going to do it. It's just too hard. There's too many things. I'm just going to be somewhat general and say, hey, we have to love one another constantly. But I did want to mention three things, if I could. That, that doesn't mean these are the most important. These are just the ones that I want to mention. So loving one another constantly, I want to urge you to encourage one another constantly. Because see, to encourage one another is to love one another. We're told to encourage each other. So here's what I'm saying to us. Love one another constantly. Be an encourager to one another. Let your words be uplifting. Let your words be building up, not tearing down. Let your words be on the positive, not on the negative. Isn't it easy to be negative? What do they say? We, we share seven things. We share a negative thing seven times before we share a positive thing. Why? Why is that? It has to do something, I'm sure, with our brokenness. And so here I'm saying to us this morning, love one another constantly. Be an encourager constantly. Here's another one. Meet one another's needs, physical and emotional. I mean, hey, listen, if we don't have each other, who do we have? So meet one another's needs. I mean, when somebody's hurting, be there for them. And, and don't, you don't have to be an answer man. You don't have to be the Bible answer man. You don't have to be any kind of answer man. Just be there to support one another and care for each other and, you know, to say I'm there. And physical needs. Let's meet one another's physical needs. And the third thing I wrote down, and again, I'm, I know I'm just blowing through this, but love one another constantly. I mean, I say forgive one another. That'd be my third one that I'd share with you. Encourage, meet one another's needs, and then forgive one another. Why would I say forgive one another? Because we're so prone to hurt one another. And we don't even mean to hurt each other, and we do. We hurt each other with this saying or that saying, and we don't even know we've hurt you because I didn't mean to hurt you, so my words hurt you, but I didn't know that. And forgive one another. I mean, you know how many times in, in the New Testament our brothers and sisters who were writing it would say things like, forgive one another, forgive. I mean, it's just, it's all throughout there, forgive one another. 
It's a shame that we have to be told to love each other, isn't it? To love one another. It's a, why should we have to be told that? You would think that'd just be natural for us, belonging to God. We should just, I mean, why shouldn't you have to tell me to love you? It should just flow out of me, but it doesn't. It doesn't flow out of you either. Look at verse 23. I, I, 23, I think this is what Peter I think this is what Peter's alluding to when he, when, he, when he closes out the chapter. Because you have been born again. Remember, love one another constantly because you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Now, in the, again, if you go back to the original language, it doesn't come out in the English translation, but if you go back to the original language, when it says you were born not of perishable seed. The word seed there makes it really clear that it's talking about humanity. The word makes it clear that it's talking about a man and a woman, their seed coming together, and it's talking about people there. It says, not of, so we're born again, we're born a second time, not like the first time. The first time we're born of perishable seed. We're, we're, we're born, you know, when mom and dad came together and I was formed or you were formed, you were formed with, with perishable seed. You're going to die. All flesh, all people are like the grass in all its glory, like the flower. Our glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. It's all going to die. But the word of the Lord endures forever. We were born, and go back to verse 23, we were born again, not of that perishable seed that, that formed us the first time, but we were born again of an imperishable seed through the enduring word of God. So here's what Peter says. We have been born again. A new life has been given to us through the word of God that came together with our faith to cause us to be born again to something that will not die. We are born again to something that is imperishable, something that will not pass away. And I think that's got two, two fronts. Uh, you know, one of them would be we're, we're going to live in immortality. We're going to live forever. We have eternal life in Christ. So he, he could be referencing he could be referencing that, and I think he is referencing that. But, but underlying all of that is that the word of God doesn't perish and doesn't die. And what that means is this. Man, I want Jesus to come back. I'm so tired. And I'm not talking about COVID either. I just, maybe it's getting old. I'm just ready for Jesus to come back and for the new kingdom to come. Maybe it's because, maybe it's because of Shep. Maybe because I'm missing one of my children. Maybe that's why, you know, this, this urgency or this desire for Jesus to come back is even greater. I, I don't know. But I, I want him to come back. But you know what? It may be another thousand years before Jesus comes back. I mean, I know all the Bible prophets are out there saying it'll be tomorrow. But they've been saying it's going to be tomorrow for a thousand years or at least for the last 200 years. Anyway, they've been saying it's going to be tomorrow. But what if it's another 1,000 years? What if Jesus tarries and it's another 2,000 years? You know, here's what Peter's saying. He's saying the word of God is forever. And a 1,000 years from now, if Jesus tarries, the church will be here. 
God's people will still be here. God's people will still be making disciples. God's people will still be following Jesus. Why? Because the word of God is an enduring, eternal thing. And when it couples itself with our faith, it produces regeneration and being born again to a living hope that never perishes and never dies. And I believe Peter has that in mind as well. And this good news that has come to you and changed you forever, therefore you should love one another constantly. So let me sum it all up and I'm finished. Number one, be on the edge of your seat to use your mind. Be ready to think. Number two, be committed to think deeply. Don't be ruled by your emotions. Don't accept things that just pop into your mind or that are merely given to you by others. Be sober-minded. Think deeply the things of God. And when you're in the crucible, in the crucible of suffering and pain, be anchored and riveted to the hope that we have of this inheritance of salvation that's coming, this eternal life, this resurrection that we will experience at the return of Jesus. Those are Peter's words. Number four, be obedient to God. Choose to die to your desires. Know that's hard. I know it's hard, but live by the Spirit. And finally, be constantly loving your brothers and your sisters. And now I'll go even deeper and say this. Love your enemies too. Love your enemies too. Be resolved. Because we have been born again to this living hope of an inheritance that is guarded by God in his heaven to be given to us on that last day, be resolved. Therefore, let's pray. Father, how I just ask that by your spirit you would take and you would just um, seal these thoughts in our mind, Lord, so that even this week and from this day forward even, Lord, we would do as Peter is admonishing us to do and to be. Lord, help us. Spirit, fill us. Use our church, Lord, for your glory and for your honor. Use me. Use us all individually. And we just commit all of this to you in Jesus' name. Thanking you for Peter's words. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.